welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones. And I'm your co-host, Clara Takefield. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and final year law students who are very passionate about feminism and the law. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Holly Lawford-Smith, political philosopher, academic, and author. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, hi. Yes, uh, it's, uh, I'm Holly, and um, I'm a political philosopher at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and uh, really looking forward to talking to you guys. Thank you. Um, so you recently published an article about the prevalence of misogyny on social media. Just how bad is it? Um, well, in that article, we were mainly focused on Twitter. So we didn't do a kind of comprehensive survey across different platforms. Um, and the empirical evidence, as is usual, I guess, for these kinds of topics, um, some of it suggested things were worse than others. Uh, so one of the studies we looked at, I think, was about female MPs in Scotland and it found the rate as being at about 2.4 I think it was percent of the tweets that they received which can sound pretty low um, but then I guess for anyone with a high follow account on Twitter um, you know two to three out of every hundred tweets you receive being misogynistic or abusive that is quite high um, and then there were other reports suggesting things are things are worse and of course, the big kind of um, report was Amnesty International's toxic Twitter report, I think in 2018, was that or 2019, I think 2018, um, just kind of making a pretty strong case that uh, women are dealing with disproportionate amounts of um, harassment and abuse on social media platforms. And in saying that some are much worse than others. So I think there were three that were, um, were particularly bad and tended to have about double the rates of men than women on the platforms which of course might might be related <laughs> and so twitter was twitter was one of those platforms so how does misogyny typically present itself on social media or or twitter in particular like what type of abuse do women commonly experience um, so I think in this case, it, with the MPs, um, it was things like, um, you know, denigrating or sneering, being given less respect or assumed to have less credibility. So just more sort of hostile type uh, reactions and interactions. So I guess things like quote tweeting or, or replies, um, that's sort of in the best case that's still in the ballpark of being um deeply unpleasant bordering on harassment and then of course you've got more outright um uh, misogyny that kind of explicitly denigrates women or denigrates an individual in virtue of her membership in the class uh women and i guess there's just like very different flavors of that depending where you're coming from on the political spectrum right so um from the sort of gender traditionalists who would express a kind of resentment toward women being in public life at all or in powerful roles in public life, just toward the use of the, um, sort of on the other end of the spectrum toward the use of things like slurs. Um, so there's like a whole range of stuff that we might be interested in. And of course the complex question is gonna be what, what's the stuff that is just a part of life on social media, even if it's deeply unpleasant, like I don't see any real way to change things like um, 
credibility reactions, right? Like maybe it's just going to be a part of life that women are facing sort of, more, you know, women experts, for example, facing more skepticism from men because there's these kind of like assumptions about expertise or credibility. That's horrible. Um, but it's hard to see a way to change that without like really encroaching on on people's freedom of expression or freedom of speech. But there's things that you certainly could intervene on to make life better for women on these platforms. Things like slurs or things like incitement to violence, um, dehumanizing language and stuff like that. So there's improvements at least that I think could be made. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and why do you think this is such a common problem experienced by women specifically? I guess like, as a feminist, I would just say that there's still a lot of work still to be done until we get to sex equality. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I think maybe we would think is unacceptable um, might be stuff that someone with a very different worldview of the relation between the sexes or the nature of women, they would just think that they're just truth tellers, right? So. Um, I guess like the the root of the problem is just global attitudes to what the relation between the sexes are and how different they are and what the proper place of each is right and then from all of that um come certain sorts of attitudes and things that feel like violations right like if you have a traditionalist conception of gender you think a woman's place is kind of raising children or being in the home or, you know, looking attractive. And then you have women just flagrantly violating these norms. And that, that really feels like things are out of place to you and you express resentment, right? Um, it's kind of comprehensible where that comes from. And some part of that debate, I think we've, we've sort of settled, you know, with science and with, um, experiments and living you know as the, the pragmatist would say because we've just like put women into these situations or given them opportunities and seen them thrive and flourish in them so we've kind of debunked certain of the traditionalist ideas about the relation between the sexes but there's still heaps of open questions that are still playing out and there's still like reasonable disagreement on, on some of those grounds right like about whether there are any you know particular evolved um, differences that might lead to you know different kind of um, average preferences for example right so uh, you could certainly have someone with a very strong view about that that then thought well no it's like in women's nature or it's in most women's nature to be more like this than like this um, but she's not like that so <laughs> she's kind of she's out of her place or she's um, she's she's going against nature or, or whatever else so I don't know I think it's like it can be easy to think we've done we've made so much progress with feminism and then be puzzled about why there's still so much abuse or harassment or caricaturing or you know like yeah denigrating of women but I think we still have a really long way to go and so it's not really surprising at all that we see um, we see this playing out online as well as in real life. Yeah, so it sounds like there's still expectations for how women are meant to behave in society, and that translates to um, behavior online as well. So how does how does this abuse that women face on social media impact their online behavior? Well, in one of the studies that we looked at found that women had substantially altered their interactions with social media. And again, I think this was focused on Twitter. 
Um, so it was something like 25, 26% of the women surveyed had had abuse, of, abuse to the extent of things like threats of physical violence or, or, or rape threats. And then uh, of that proportion, it was a really high number. So it was something like 75% of those women had kind of substantially modified the, modified the ways they use or interact with social media as a result. So that's going to mean like, I don't know, using it substantially less um, or maybe like having a private account so that you don't just have to kind of take whatever uh, interactions come at you. And again, like it can sound trivial, right? Like, oh, this woman has to use Twitter a little bit less or maybe that's great. <laughs> maybe she'll be more productive like in her ordinary job or her life or whatever. But I think one of the things that, and particularly this was um, my co-author was, was um, kind of really uh, impressing this on me that so much of like our, you know, career opportunities um, are being sort of pushed toward having a digital presence. And I think she feels that more than me because she's more junior. So it's kind of just, you know, in academia is one example, but I'm sure this true, is true for a lot of different industries that Twitter becomes, or, you know, various other platforms, but I think Twitter and LinkedIn maybe like very prominent examples like you can kind of make your social networks and get opportunities that way and so it's not trivial actually if you have to um limit your interactions with these platforms or you know spend substantially less time on them in order to manage um the sorts of interactions that you're having and how unpleasant they are yeah it definitely sounds like the impact is more severe than what it seems from what you're saying um, so you also mentioned in the article that some social media platforms, like Twitter um, especially, have agreed that there is a problem and have made some changes as a, re as a consequence, um, but these policy changes had some undesirable impacts. So could you maybe explain what they've done and how it has inadvertently caused problems for women, um, such as banning and self-censorship, for example? Yeah, and I think this is actually an interesting broader phenomenon. So I was listening to a, a podcast earlier today that was talking about this, I think, in the anti-racism space, um, which I was surprised to hear just because I hadn't really look, looked into it in other areas that often these kinds of policies do backfire against exactly the groups that they're intended um, to protect. And I guess we shouldn't be that surprised by that, right, because dominant groups and in this case we're talking about men they are more used to using the systems that like that, that have been put in place or that they have put in place they're more confident about using them or maybe they um whatever people with more social power are more just feel more empowered to use those tools perhaps um so it's not that surprising i guess that it turns out that once you put new policy tools or 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 laws into place it's the people who have more social power who tend to use them right so there's this risk that like you introduce these tools that are supposed to protect women from online misogyny or online abuse um, but then the the more confident or more powerful players tend to be the ones who actually use those tools so that a, a horrible example of this that's not on social media is the um, uh, domestic violence um laws in uh at least one state of australia where you can be believed by the police when you tell them that your partner has been assaulting you but so often the 
the man will assault the woman and then he'll call the police and because she's maybe mildly fought back at some stage or even if she hasn't he can tell the police that he has been assaulted and the police officers will believe him and arrest her <laughs> so these tools that have kind of been put in place in the hope of like preventing domestic assault or domestic violence against women are then being used by men and of course because they're symmetrical protections right so anyone can use them sorry that's just a very long-winded way of saying that um twitter did then make this move to put in place um a range of kind of measures about hateful conduct and gender i can't actually remember if it was gender or sex now which is bad but in any case one of those two features that was intended to protect women was added to this list of protected attributes um and one thing that i have kind of really worried about is the way that then immediately trans activists have ended up using their own protections against women and women have been getting um you know temporary and permanent bans um <laughs> And yes, in some cases, like my own case, sort of permanently thrown off um, of the platform of Twitter. So I guess, what does that show? Maybe being maximally charitable, um, it shows that it's very hard to get the policy right uh, or to put a policy in place that's gonna protect a particular social group, but can't be abused or doesn't have like loopholes or doesn't let the dominant group in relation to them kind of take advantage of that policy or you'd have to be careful that you didn't sort of protect two minority groups at once but in a way that meant because <laughs> i think that this is a particularly complicated case right that's like you might just think oh there's trans people that's separate and then there's women that's separate so we can protect both of them but if you're not cognizant of the ways that these two groups can kind of interact um then you're getting women throwing off thrown off a platform for having a specific conception of feminism so a conception about their own liberation but because that clashes with the self-conception that trans activists have it's being framed as being a certain sort of yeah what and anti-feminist behavior or anti-lgbtq or anti-woman behavior because you've got this much broader conception of of woman so it's all kind of a mess yeah, and I, I going off the example of women getting banned, I mean, that was an issue for um, Canadian feminist Megan Murphy, whom you may have heard of as well. She was also banned from Twitter permanently because of her gender critical um, beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, but expanding on the, the policies and the the impacts, the real world impacts that has on, on women for, for a second, um, you wrote in your article, and this is a direct quote, um, that... Twitter is not merely a commercial entity, but is rather a social and political institution whose architecture and policies produce real world effects for women. So could you maybe explain what the real world effects are and how, how these are caused by Twitter? In that section of the paper, um, we were trying to present a bunch of different examples, but one of them was about the way that um, this case which I just thought was absolutely fascinating about um, the abortion debate kind of having gone global and I think it was that a particular platform in Ireland had started analyzing various anti-abortion uh, sort of um, anti-choice tweets that had been coming in and they later found that 
the bulk of them were coming from the United States. And I think that was just a helpful way of showing that like you've got this big global democratic speech platform um, that uh, you know facilitates having these really important debates and even if it's kind of a commercial platform technically rather than a you know a, um, um, a, a more obvious institution of our democracy it's still kind of serving this really important democratic role which shows that like we should take participation on this platform uh, really seriously. How difficult is it to hold individual misogynists on social media accountable for their behaviour? Uh, I would say very difficult. Um, we were kind of approaching the question in the paper as moral philosophers. Um, so we were really interested in this question of like, where is the blame or the culpability for the fact that women have this type of experience on certain platforms like Twitter or like Reddit? And so we were working through um, well, can we just pin this on individual men who use the platforms and then, you know, tweet misogynistic things at a Scottish MP? Like, why not pin it on him? Um, and that was the sort of first thing that we entertained and then and then rejected. Um, and I think part of the reason there is like just often what he does is so low level. So you might have heard this concept of microaggressions that got fashionable in the last sort of five to ten years. Um, so maybe it's sometimes something in that ballpark, but I think probably even less because sometimes it's just like a like, right, of a, a mean tweet or it's a, a retweet and a slightly snide quote tweet. And I think we were kind of thinking that the the real harm of it to women, like what it's what it's like or what might drive you off the platform or make you really alter your usage, it's the cumulative effect of all of those little things. It's not really one person's tweet, or at least it's hardly ever the case that one person's Twitter action crosses the line, right? Crosses the threshold for really counting as something that you could say was a harm to you, um, or even was an insult to you or, or whatever. The cumulative effect is the thing that matters rather than what any individual um, misogynist does at least most of the time um, and that we sort of related into this discussion sort of much bigger discussion in philosophy that crosses like I think we gave examples of about four areas where the structure of the problem is just what individuals do on a discrete occasion through their actions just makes such a tiny and maybe insignificant or insubstantial contribution but it's kind of what a lot of people do together where the thing rises to moral significance. So like voting to elect a candidate or the fact that people buy enough sweatshop t-shirts that certain people are having these horrible working lives in sweatshops. So it's cases like that. So we sort of went through some of that argument and then dismissed the idea that the blame is really lying with the individual, let's call them like misogynist tweeters. We thought actually, no, we need something more substantial than that. So it sounds like um, you think that the, the platform itself should be held accountable, but how, how could this be done? Yeah, <laughs> that, I mean, it's a really fair question because we sort of went from the individual, like, no, it can't be him. And then we tried to say, well, maybe could it be like coalitions of them together? Well, they're not usually organized enough, at least enough in the way that moral philosophers tend to want 
groups to be organized to hold them responsible as a group and so then we kind of landed on the, on the platform itself the 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 how some things it's just too late for so one of the things we talked about was that like at the platform's inception there could have been certain safeguards built in or there could have been more thought given to the fact that you know at least for certain of these platforms there tend to be many more male users than female users you know and so just like thought to, to how to make a platform a more appealing kind of an inclusive place um, for both sexes and those safeguards weren't built in so we talk about the history of twitter again in particular that apparently it had no rules <laughs> for quite a lot of its uh, from its inception um, and so I think it was that it had about 5 million users before it then introduced some rules, right? But, but if we're asking about pragmatic interventions that could be made now, you know, the ship has sailed on that, right? Like we already are where we are. And I guess we're having this conversation at a really interesting time, right? Because there's been this change um, of ownership in Twitter. So we've gone from a much more left-wing and highly interventionist strategy on Twitter to what will probably be when it all shakes out, although at the time we're recording this, we're kind of waiting to hear, um, but when it all shakes out, it should be a much less interventionist and kind of free speech type approach to the platform. Um, although Musk is saying that he still plans to keep some hateful conduct type policies in place. So yeah, I mean, what 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 could we hope for as feminists? I mean, it seems like a lot of this is done non-explicitly, right? Like they just have this vague hateful conduct policy and say you can't discriminate on the basis of, you know, whether they use sex or gender. What would that ideally involve? Um, I think the really hard philosophical question here is what are the like open, important debates that haven't yet been settled even if we find them uncomfortable like as feminists I think we have to be really honest about that and then make sure that no hateful conduct rules that we put in place could possibly encroach on or close down that discussion in advance and one reason I feel so strongly about that is actually related to this conflict that gender critical feminists have with trans activists where I think what the old Twitter regime has done is look at an open debate which is like what is feminism who is feminism for can feminism be a movement based on sex do we need a movement based on sex and they've taken a substantive position in that debate and then they've called their enemies hate speech <laughs> and so the hate speech policy is actually a political tool that's being used to silence particular perspectives in the debate and those perspectives are legitimate and the debate is far from settled. So I think that's a really cool thing to keep in mind when we're trying to think as feminists about what we would want the hateful conduct policy to be when it comes to abusive women, right? Because we wanna, we wanna get rid of the worst of it. We wanna get rid of the, the slurs and the dehumanizing language and, and the claims about moral inferiority, right? But we don't wanna go so far as to shut up men who are only contributing to what is a kind of reasonable and open debate about the places of the sexes, even if we vehemently disagree with them. 
Yeah, it sounds like it's very much about um, finding a balance there. Mm, exactly. Yeah, I do think you've hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, so I was wondering, do you think that government regulation could play a role in terms of preventing misogyny on social media platforms? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Musk was saying that he wants to defer to the law of each country. And I think that's a, it's a hilariously American perspective, right? Because America has such strong First Amendment protections. And so what he's saying there is that in the context of America, they're going to go from being this highly interventionist, sort of um, far left agenda platform um, to being more back toward the, yeah, your classical liberal or libertarian free speech type platform. But that's not true in Germany, right? And that's not true in Australia. And in my state, Victoria, um, in Australia, we are uh, looking very likely to, early next year, introduce new hate speech laws. They're called vilification laws here, um, that will add a range of new protected attributes. They're both intended to protect trans people and um, women and uh, sexual orientation minorities. So there's sort of three new groups that will be protected added to the existing groups of race and religion. So our hate speech um, rules will become some of the most like stringent and excessive that you can imagine. <laughs> and then Musk is saying like, and assume, he's assuming he's going to make the platform have more free speech on it. Right. But if he's tethering that to the laws of each country and or state, it might be that in some states it has, massively less right <laughs> than, than he seems to be assuming that it would have um so I find that quite quite interesting and I mean I otherwise quite like I don't know what you guys think I'd be interesting to hear but I, I find it quite appealing in some ways that like yeah it wouldn't be up to the social media companies themselves because this is such a it, it's so important that everyone has a voice in these global open you know open platform political discussions like I think people like me and Megan Murphy and Graham Linehan we feel very silenced and very frustrated right that we that we can't just be on Twitter chipping into these various debates like we have lost something so it is really important to be able to participate but then yeah <laughs> I don't know what you do about the states that that really overreach and maybe when I reflect on that it makes me think oh this is actually it's not about the state versus the corporation it's all about the politics of it it's that if the corporation has a more hands-off approach that doesn't encroach on open debates and roughly gets things right you don't mind it right or I don't with my, I with my politics don't mind it because I'm going to be much more angry at the state when the state starts encroaching on my ability to talk about my feminism, right, and starts calling that vilification, um, th then I would probably prefer that the corporation with the more lenient policy was the one to make the rules rather than the state that was like highly interventionist and super woke about it. So then I think, okay, actually, no, I'm not, it's not, it's not a question of who's the right authority to make these rules. It's just that whoever makes them, I don't want them to be settling open debates in advance and enforcing a particular ideology on everyone. And unfortunately, Twitter has done that in the past and my state is about to do it in the future. And 
we just have to fight that wherever we find it, right? If we care about open debate. Yeah, and I mean, it's particularly difficult given the the international perspective of, you know, social media platforms, or, or I guess we're talking about Twitter mostly here. So you've got people from all over the world who are contributing to one debate, and it's kind of hard to find that balance given the different laws of different different countries and different states about what can be what can be said and what can't be said so um yeah it's definitely it's definitely um a difficult complex thing to resolve um so going on from that um you mentioned that um twitter is a private rather than public platform so it's not bound by uh the same democratic principles as other meet like traditional media outlets. So do you think that given that um, a lot of political debate happens on Twitter and that people get their news from Twitter, that Twitter should be held to these same standards as traditional media outlets? Yeah, I mean, so I think the the temptation is always to say like, and this has been said to me, right, when I've complained about being banned from Twitter, it's like, but it's a commercial entity. There's a sense in which it can just do whatever it likes <laughs> yeah dating platforms are like that and essay blog writing platform you know if they can just have their rules and if you don't like them you find another platform and there's a sense in which you know I, I sort of have some sympathy for that but the more that the platform becomes a sort of monopoly or de facto monopoly uh the more that it's kind of playing the role that our um important sort of democratic institutions play you know and the the media is a really important part of that but there's lots of platforms and ways that we all you know if we just think about it domestically right ways that we all participate in and get to have a say in in our politics and our lives are now increasingly online and we do increasingly a lot of the stuff we might have done face-to-face in the past through these digital platforms so i just sort of think yeah, Twitter is fairly unique in what it offers. It's not like there's no comparable platforms. Um, you know, Reddit offers similar sorts of opportunities. Um, there's Mastodon now, you know, which maybe will will end up offering enough of a similar kind of um, service, but it doesn't have anything like the critical mass yet. So yeah, I think the more that it's the case that this thing, even if it is private, is offering this way of people contributing to the political discussion, whether that's international or or domestic, the more I think it has to take seriously ob- obligations to sort of f- facilitate participation in that discussion. And the more that it's kind of wrong for it to just exercise these commercial prerogatives to throw off anyone who violates some kind of arbitrarily specified standard. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think what really stings <laughs> maybe it is about this is just the like the the partisan. It's almost like the, it's not like there's one of each, right? It's not like if you're someone sort of on the further left who really just thinks like diversity and inclusion are the leading values, and everything else should come second to them that then you have Twitter pre-mask. But if you have a more free speech type attitude, then you have platform X, right? Whatever it is. 
it's not like there's like an equal number or like medium is another example right this great website for hosting people having these sort of blog like things but really facilitates sharing of those posts and you know that platform as well like i'm banned from that right, for writing gender critical stuff and again it's not like there's just another medium that has more free speech style policies so there's a place that everyone can go and participate it's like the whole point of having this global discussion is that you need you need a place where where people can find their people at the very least but you would hope even though there's this problem of severe polarization that people can at least be in the same space as each other when they disagree and maybe talk right so problem one it's not like there's platforms for both sides and i can just go somewhere else when i get banned it's not but even if there were, that might still be the less desirable solution because we do want people to be together and have a sort of chance of having conversations and working out their differences. So I think we ended up thinking that given the role that Twitter and some of these other platforms play in the kind of global democratic discussion, they have really serious obligations actually when it comes to um, uh, facilitating democratic debate. Although I think we ended up leaning more on this kind of professional opportunities, equal opportunity, career type line than we did on the democratic line, if I'm remembering our argument correctly. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and can I just ask you, so in terms of if we see someone being a misogynist on social media, um, what do you think would be the right response for us, from us as individuals in terms of reporting them or otherwise? I mean, that's such a good question. I mean, I guess it's always very hard to establish if someone is acting in good faith and there's a conversation that could be had, right? Because I'm like a huge fan of trying to talk across our disagreement, even when it's uncomfortable. And I tend to always give everyone a shot. And this wasted a lot of my time when I was still on Twitter because I just find myself having these pointless arguments of like, you know, a 16 year old, someone who would turn out to be like a 16 year old from Texas with three followers or something, right? Like, just like <laughs> cheerfully taking up all the, the threads <laughs> until they prove themselves like just hopeless or belligerent or rude or whatever else. And then you drop it. So, I mean, I, partly that's just going to be, I think it would be great if we would always like be willing to give conversations a shot because you do find some interesting people with, with interesting perspectives or, you can at least find out why they have those views. And sometimes there's a chance of like at least getting to the bottom of what's explaining that perspective. Maybe it's resentment, maybe it's insecurity. Um, I don't know, but, but on the like using the report function, I guess this is the thing where if we had a really clear sense as feminists of what counted, that, that should be fine, right? Um, you know, if, if we agree that there's certain slurs that are just unacceptable or dehumanizing language or, yeah, saying things like she, she's just a, a thing to fuck, right? Like the, these, bringing these sort of subordinating stereotypes, if there's a sort of class of things that have been explicitly articulated and you can just report on the basis of them, they are clear rule violations. I don't see why that would be a problem. But I think what happens with the imprecision in the rules, which is what's happening to feminists now, is that like, yeah, it's not clear. Like Twitter states, misgendering is wrong. But then trans activists mass report feminists for saying there are two sexes. 
and then people get banned. <laughs> so it's like the imprecision of what counts as hateful or somehow like, yeah, falling on the wrong side of that line. And so you wouldn't want it to be that you've just sort of empowered this army of feminists to go around like policing everyone's language because they don't like it, right? And we have to admit some of our activists can be just as bad as the trans activists sometimes. Right? So, so it's somehow like, yeah, getting a clear understanding where we're re reporting the actual bad stuff, but we're not crossing over into just like silencing other people's thoughts or expressions because we don't like them. And I think for me, it's sharpened that so much facing the trans activists because I see all the ways that they behave and I just hate it so much. And so now I'm like really cautious about not being like that myself and not wanting my people, which is women and feminists, to be like that either. But we don't have that clear sense yet, I think. Thank you for that. So if people want to learn more about um, your views on feminism or your views on political philosophy, where can they go to, to read some things or to learn more? Oh, uh, thanks. Yeah, the, um, so philpapers.org, is it? I think is our main repository in, in philosophy. So if you just go to philpapers and search my name, Holly Lockwood-Smith, you would find all of my work. Um, I have a book that came out this year called Gender Critical Feminism. So that's where my, my like most recent take on uh, feminism can be found. And I'm on YouTube. We actually a, a colleague and co-author of mine, Kate Phelan, and I run a channel called Feminist Heretics, where we present some sort of work from second wave feminists, usually radical feminists. And sometimes we do uh, lengthy chat slash reviews of recent uh, feminist books. So you can also find me there. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Thanks for having me. In today's Feminist News Roundup, following Spain's consent law passed in August of this year aimed at preventing perpetrators with sexual violence from being charged of a lesser crime or acquitted altogether, Spain has actually witnessed an impact that it had likely not envisaged when passing this law. Due to the tougher nature of the threshold to pass for consent to be established, many detainees are walking free early because instead of rape, their conv conviction is altered and their sentence reduced as a result. Also in today's news roundup, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has spoken about his tough stance on crime and his fear for women and girls' safety after the murder of Zara Alina. Zara was a newly trained lawyer who was murdered by career criminal Jordan McSweeney while walking home in East London just days after he had been released from prison. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.